The rest of us can find our way to Ephesians if you haven't already. My name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is our delight if you're a guest. We're glad that you found your way to gather with us and to hope that the truths that we have sung together this morning that were read, uh, even as we prayed, we hope that your heart has been encouraged and reminded of the riches that God has given to us in Christ. And uh, church family, we have a real privilege this morning. I know it's something that we can become accustomed to in a routine of a Sunday gathering, and here we are again another Sunday. But church family, I want just to remind us of how extraordinary privileged we are to have God's word in our hands and to open God's word and we can hear God speak. God has spoken through his word and his word is what brings life to his people. His word brings life to his church and sustains us. So, uh, church family, I don't know uh, what kind of burdens or challenges you bring in with you in your heart. Um, Even maybe regrets about wishing you had lived a better life as a Christian this past week. Uh, Friends, I want to encourage you that God is with us and he is for you and he goes before us and his word will bring life to our hearts. And so we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, We're here because we're going to finish off what we started a month ago. (laughs) Um, I know it's not fair to expect any of us to remember what happened a month ago. Uh, We can't figure out what happened last week. Uh, So I'll just do a very quick snapshot of where we were last week, or a month ago. Uh, We looked at the first half of Ephesians 2 together. And in that, verses 1 through 10, and you can go ahead and glance through your scripture and remind yourself a little bit of what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. But in that section, we learned that the cross shows that you are a sinner. And we were reminded of the massive problem that we have. Really, our biggest problem in life is not out there. A lot of times we think that our problems are out there, and if we could just fix those problems out there, we'd be okay. And there certainly are problems out there. But really, the Scripture teaches that the biggest problem we have is the problem in here, in our hearts, of sin, our own sinfulness. Our treasonous mentality against God, our resistance to his rule and reign in our life, And we learned in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 that the cross not only shows you that you are a sinner, but the cross shows that you are loved. And this really is one of the just marvelous treasures of the Christian gospel. This is what the whole world is looking for. To be fully known, all of the nooks and crannies of our sinfulness, God sees that, knows it. And yet at the same time, to be completely loved. That is what Ephesians 2 tells us, the first half. It not only shows us that we're sinners, but that also by the cross that we are completely loved. Notice how radical God's love is. Look at verses 4 and 6 of chapter 2. We're fully known by God, and yet at the same time, in Jesus, we are completely loved. And friends, this is one of the unique claims of Christianity. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're thinking Christianity is just kind of a code of spiritual ethics that you have to conform to, it's kind of boring and restrictive and you know, stuffy. That is not what true Christianity is. Every other religion says something like this. Moral effort is enough. If you pull yourself together, really pull yourself together, if you really try hard enough, you're going to be okay. You'll follow these steps, do this process, follow these rules, and you'll be okay. Christianity says the opposite. Christianity says the Christian gospel and the scriptures says, no, you can't. Not ever. That's impossible. That'll never work. You're so bad. You failed so much in every area of your life, personally, publicly, privately, relationally, socially, morally. Keep on putting on the descriptions in there. That is the biblical description of us. 
we are so bad that only the death of the Son of God could save us. And that's what God did. The Son of God himself came, lived a perfect life where we couldn't, died the death that we deserve to offer all who would come to him in repentant faith forgiveness of sin, the shame of sin removed, the condemnation of sin removed, eternal life granted to enjoy God forever. Friends, there's nothing else like this. And this is why we can gather on a Sunday morning and sing and praise and worship and adore, even when our hearts are broken because we live in a sin-broken world, right? These truths are firm. These truths are unchanging. Do you believe this? Have you embraced these truths, turned away from your efforts of self-salvation, self-justification? Have you embraced these truths of Christ, crucified, risen, coming again as your Savior, your Lord, your Redeemer? If so, that is what makes someone a Christian, not, not conforming to a religious code. Well, why does this matter for us today? Well, there is nothing more practical for the demands of everyday living in this rough-and-tumble world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. The idea that the gospel is kind of the entrance into the Christian life and then you kind of grow out of it into more complex, deeper theological ideas, that is wrong. There's nothing more practical or deeper than the unsearchable riches of Christ, is how the scriptures describe the gospel of Jesus. We never move past the gospel. What we begin to do is move deeper into understanding the gospel and understanding the implications of what it looks like as the gospel truths of all that God has promised that he is for us in Jesus, what it means, what it looks like to work out those truths into the nooks and crannies of our everyday life. And so when you've been transformed by God's love, when you've embraced the enormity of God giving himself to you in love through Jesus, only then will you be able to, as Peter described it, keep on loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. In Ephesians 2.4, it's when God's rich mercy crashes into your life like the tsunami wave, only then will you be able to not grumble about others, even when you have reason to, but instead of grumbling, instead you're going to 1 Peter 4.9, you're going to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's radical. It's transforming. Different. And that's what we looked at a month ago in the first part of Ephesians 2. This, this dramatic transformation that God does in sinners who repent and believe. This radical transformation God does in individuals. But there's more. And that's what we're going to spend our time this morning looking into is the last half of Ephesians 2, which, was, which Mark read to us. And I had him read in a different translation just to help us maybe not become so... Sometimes you become familiar with certain patterns of the way Bible words are, and that's okay, right? Memory of God's word is good. But we live in a really a rich time of world history, of church history, where we have multiple great translations. And so we're going to look at the last half of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. And this is not going to be exhaustive. There are going to be large portions of rich doctrine that we're going to just skip kind of on over. And that does not mean there's not riches there for us. We're zeroing in on some specific areas that I think are going to be helpful for us in this moment of life in our church family. God does more than just save individuals. That's what he talks about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The massive, amazing, saving acts of God towards people, towards individuals. But God does more. God saves individuals into a radical new community. Um, radical. I don't know what, what word, uh, what definition comes to mind when you think of radical. Um, but it really is simply despite, de- described as something that's comprehensive, complete, exhaustive. God saves individuals, yes, but there's more. He saves individuals into this radical new community. 
And that's what the rest of chapter 2 describes. He takes individuals who he saved, and these individuals, these different, diverse, disparate people, he brings them into one body, into this new group, and we call it the church. The scriptures call it the church. When I say church, I'm not referring to the structure of an organized religion. Maybe you have a bad taste in your mouth about just kind of organized religion, just church structurally. Um, Certainly, that is part of what is involved with a church. I mean, we have to have ways to understand how we function and govern and work together. But what I want us to understand is this community, this idea of church really is this new community, this new humanity. And I'll show why I'm using those terms, new humanity, here in just a moment. This new humanity is going to have some form, some plan, some structure, some governance. Yes, but don't get caught up in all that now. I want us to understand the spirit, the the God-sized vision, this glorious vision of what this new humanity this uh, is. Instead of, well, think of it this way. The Bible is very bold and straightforward about describing this new community. And God's work is being done, not primarily in individuals, but according to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, God's work is being done not through spiritual mavericks, but through this new humanity, this church, which we are a part of. Praise God. So notice the word therefore in verse 11 of chapter 2. This means that everything Paul is about to write stands on the shoulders of everything he has written. So God's saving acts towards individuals in verses 1 through 10 are what bring together very different groups of people, Jew and Gentile. Do you see that in the text as you keep reading down? How he's describing this massive difference between these two general groups of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Gentiles were far off, meaning they were not the recipients of the law of God, of God's unique covenant promises to Israel. And yet God does something magnificent in the gospel of Jesus. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? Through religious conduct? Through religious observance? No. You see that in the text in verse 13? By the blood of Christ. So Jew and Gentile really describes everyone in the world, all races. And he's brought these disparate, different groups of people into this one unified body through the blood of Christ. And they're not just different in a little bit. They're different in massive ways. So different, look at verse 14, that he brought peace. Why was, there, why, why was peace needed? Because there was this dividing wall of hostility. There was hostility between these different groups of people And the gospel of Jesus Christ is what removes that hostility. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace where there was hostility. Look at verse 15. God is making this new people a new humanity, unlike anything else that the world would know. In verse 15 it says that he might, he's doing this, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So this is why we can understand that the church is a new humanity, that God is making in himself one new man, one new humanity, this new humanity that God is making through the cross work, the gospel of Christ. But look at verse 16. What God does through the gospel of Jesus is reconcile people, and you're going to hear this phrase, I I hope, numerous times in this sermon. He reconciles people to God into one body through the cross. He reconciles people to God into one body through the cross. What we find here is that the gospel so radically replaces your identity as an individual that where you would ordinarily have hostility towards other people, 
while there was good reason, so to speak, good worldly reason, so to speak, for there to be this hostility, what actually happens is the gospel so fundamentally changes who we are, so radically transforms who we are, that we now, instead of hostility, have peace. This is why I call it radical. Nothing else in the world can do this. Our world is trying to find ways to bring about world peace, right? And it always is elusive. It can never be found. Why? Because there's no policy, there's no um, treaty that's going to do it other than the work of God in Jesus Christ through the gospel. The gospel so radically replaces our identity that we can have peace where there would be hostility. This is why the only hope for the world is a salvation and new life found in Jesus Christ. Church family, this is just a reminder of what we are bound together to do to proclaim this message. These glories. This is our mission. There is a world around us that is looking for hope, for peace, that is looking for this idea of belonging and love, and they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And we have this unique privilege of having been having tasted the goodness of God in the cross of Christ, and now we get to be ambassadors of this amazing gospel message. God brings peace. So do you see why the Bible calls this a new humanity? It's really like unlike anything else that we could try to make. If you were to try to start your own country and build it the best you could, but you didn't do it with gospel truths, it's not going to be a new humanity. <laughs> it won't be. When you are reconciled to God, Ephesians 2 Paul wants his readers to understand that is the identity that should matter most. What previously defines our earthly identity is replaced. It's superseded. I should use the word that. that not replaced, but superseded. It becomes the first order of importance in how God wants us to think about ourselves now. So think of it this way. What are the ways that we identify ourselves? Uh, I guess that's a problematic question in these modern age, isn't it? But think of it, you get to know somebody um, and you ask them, so where were you born or raised? Where did you grow up? Right? We're trying to anchor them in some geographic context. We hear them tell stories about that. They've moved, they went here, they went there. These are the things that start to give us our identity. Well, Paul uses the biggest summaries of that by saying you're either Jew or non-Jew. You're Jew or Gentile. We might think of ourselves as, as uh, male or female. And it doesn't mean that our our ethnic identity or our geographic identity or our gender identity is removed in the gospel. But now those identities serve a greater one through faith in Christ. That's Paul's point in Galatians 3, right into a different church, but same idea. Galatians 3, he says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's the new identity. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now again, Paul is not saying that those distinctions are, re are erased. He's saying that they are no longer have the functional influence, the primary functional influence in your life and how you relate to the world around you and others around you in the world. Your race, your ethnic heritage shouldn't be your primary identity if you've been bought, brought to God through the cross, verse 16. So, um, dare I say this? Okay, here we go, right? This means then that your opinion on global warming or fossil fuel reduction or tax code or immigration or healthcare reform, you fill in the blanks. Those should not be the identity that defines you the most if you've been 
verse 16, brought to God through the cross. Now, we mentally would agree with this as Christians. We mentally would. Yet, does your heart agree with this? And I've had to ask my own heart these same questions. Because there are important matters in the world that we care deeply about, and we should. But ask yourself some questions. Do you feel more passionate about whatever issue you want to put into that blank? Okay? You just pick it. Do you feel more passionate about that than you do about Christ crucified, risen, and coming again? That's a hard question to ask ourselves, isn't it? To give an honest answer. Do you feel like you have more in common with people who think about that particular issue the same way you do than you have with Christians around the world? So as we've teased this idea out, here's, here's where I was challenged. Is like here we live in this, this Colorado context, right? Do you feel that you have more in common with your unbelieving neighbor, your non-Christian neighbor, who maybe is, has their kids at the same school you do, and is interested in some of the same hobbies that you have, and cheers on the same sports team that you do, and enjoys barbecuing or smoking meat in similar ways that you just kind of, you're talking to your neighbor like, man, this is awesome. Man, they're so cool. We're going to hang out and have so much fun together. Do you think mentally, emotionally, do you feel that you have more in common with that person who is, in, who is yet does not know Christ than you do with a Christian that you might meet on on another continent that you're stumbling through even language barriers, but yet you both begin to understand that you both have been saved by Jesus. And you begin to stumble through with this understanding of, you've been forgiven? Jesus is your Lord too? Me too. That's one of those tests about understanding how much of Ephesians 2 and the radical new identity that God is giving us, that God intends to kind of seep in and reshape our foundation of how we relate to the world around us so that there is a new humanity that God is then building up within us. Does this new identity, this new who we are, sound radical? It is. That's why. It is. But Paul keeps going. The commitments for God's new humanity are radical. So not only is this new humanity that God has made radical, but the commitments for God's new humanity are radical. So what we've learned so far in Ephesians 2 is when the power of God crashes into your life and saves you, God changes you. He puts in place, not merely you an individual, but he changes you corporately. He puts you into one body in this new humanity. So what does this mean? For instance, is Paul talking about some sort of like spiritual version of AAA? Do you get AAA advertisements? You know, it sends it to you. They have membership card in there. And I'm like, I didn't even sign up for this. And they're telling you about all the things that you would get if you become a AAA member. And if you're a AAA member, great. I'm not, okay, this sermon is not about whether or not you should be a AAA member or not. Is it kind of like Paul saying, hey, you get a membership card. You're granted access to some services. You now have people you can call when you need roadside assistance. Well, how does Paul describe this new community? He's going to use three word pictures in this text. Beginning in verse um, 19, he's going to use three word pictures in this text, three metaphors, these illustrations to describe to the church what this new humanity is. And each one of these word pictures increases in intensity. And think of it this way. Um, When I was a kid, I remember taking a magnifying glass and going out on a sunny day and 
trying to start fires. And, um, you know, leaves and little critters that would run around, sorry. Um, and and you, you take the magnifying glass and you kind of move it around until you get that pool of light focused more and you move it and move it and it gets more and more focused until it's this pinpoint. And then you dare your friends, put your hand underneath it. So what Paul is doing is he's taking this magnifying glass and he's focusing the rays of God's truth about the church into a greater, in, into a more fine pinpoint. Okay, so we're going to, it's kind of a funnel. What's the first one? You are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. See verse 19. So then, based upon everything he's written, all this doctrine of salvation, of justification, of redemption, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, now just put a pin there. So, without the gospel, we would be looking at other people as strangers and aliens. What do I have in common with them? Like, why? They're strange. They are alien. But we're no longer strangers and aliens towards God and even towards one another in those ways. Why? But you are, here's this word picture, fellow citizens with the saints. And we're not going to pull all this, this significance out here, but let me just touch on it. But Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that even though they were not in Rome, in, I don't know why I put in Rome, they were a Roman colony and they took great pride in that status. They had the rights and privileges as if they were in Rome, but they're not. They're in Philippi. And so they took great pride in that status that they had. And Paul is actually hitting something that would have been, that would hit a, um, kind of almost a patriotic sense of pride that the, that, that the Greco-Roman new Christian would have had. And says, hey, you have something that is even of greater significance to you than what you feel proud about nationally with your Roman citizenship. You have something even greater. It's this new citizenship in God's kingdom. You are fellow citizens with the saints. When you become a Christian, you are no longer primarily from Wisconsin or California or New York or whatever state you are from. You're not primarily from the U.S. of A. or whatever country that you hail from. If you've been, verse 16, brought to God in one body through the cross, you are not primarily white or black, American or African, Asian or European. You have been given a new citizenship, the Bible says, in God's kingdom. You are now fellow citizens in God's kingdom. You have this new passport, so to speak. You have this new spiritual reality and identity to order your life around now. now again, it doesn't remove citizenship nationally. That's still there. But now you are a Christian citizen of God's kingdom in whatever land now that you have citizenship in. You've been given this new citizenship. You've sworn allegiance to a new king. A new king. This is kind of intense, right? But not too crazy. Like, okay, I mean, really, how close can you be with people in a kingdom? Like, how close do you feel about everyone in your zip code? I mean, it's like, okay, we share a zip code, big deal. We bump into each other in the same grocery store occasionally, and we see each other at the park occasionally, on walks occasionally. It's not really interfering. It's not really intimate and infringing upon me. I can kind of do what I want in my zip code. Well, Paul keeps going. Look at, keep reading in verse 19. Not only are you citizens of, of God's kingdom, we are, you see it, members of the household of God. Now we've just moved in together. This got a lot more personal, real quick. It gets much more intimate. What comes to mind when you hear the word household? 
It's not just talking about a physical structure, your address. It's talking about the shared life of a household, a family shared life. So certainly your geographic address is part of that because that's where you share life together a lot of the time. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's much more intense than just mere citizenship in a kingdom. Now you're in the same home. Now you're sharing meals together. Now you're saying good morning and good night to each other. Now you are living together and seeing each other, not just at each other's best, but at each other's worst. You're sharing special moments together, birthdays and holidays and vacations. As members of God's household, we are brothers and sisters. It seems as if what God is doing as he unrolls the redemptive plan and as we see the arc of where it's heading into Revelation and this future eternal enjoyment of God with each other forever, is that these, these realities of like our earthly kingdoms and even our earthly families are, are really there to serve as, as imagery of something much greater, something spiritual. And we flip it around. We often elevate and often highlight um, the importance of these physical um, institutions. And they are, they're important. They're God-ordained. Families, your physical family is important. But it's really there to teach you things about what it means to be the spiritual family. I mean, think about it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to fight here, but there is not, marriage does not exist in, in the eternal state. It doesn't. Um, now, marriage is very important. It's teaching us something about the gospel, yes. But, but there's a greater truth that stands over even the most intimate of human relationships, marriage. It's there to show us something that's going to last eternally and it's spiritual. And I think there's physical truths that we can start to understand in these physical realms of family and, and, and citizenship. Yes, but it's there to help us understand how to function in our God-given identity as people in this new humanity. So, think about your church family. Well, maybe I should ask this. Do you think of your church as a family? I think, I think so many of us do. Praise God for that. But let's ask ourselves maybe some uncomfortable questions, just for some personal reflection. If you related to your physical family the way you do to your church family, how healthy would your physical family be? Do you make decisions in your life as if you are spiritually single? As if you aren't a member of a spiritual household? Now, these, these ideas of family and, and unity and closeness and commitment are something we all long for, but yet when we start to describe what it looks like to actually enjoy that and live in obedience to that, especially with our modern American mindsets, which are heightened in their individuality, we start to run away from it. That's the challenge we have in our present-day culture. Now think of it. When a man and a woman get married, they can't keep living as if they're single anymore, or they shouldn't. Okay? Um, for instance, uh, guy and gal get married, and the guy, I'm just, I'll, I'll throw the guy under the bus. Um, he is, um, some friends say, hey, after work, let's meet up and let's go, um, I was going to say golfing, but uh, I, we were at a wedding in, in Minnesota. And what, you know what they do in Minnesota? They throw axes. There was this axe-throwing place up there in, in Minnesota. And so they say, hey, let's go throw axes. It's great. Three hours later, comes home. Not a word to his wife. Oh, he forgot he was married. I mean, he's done this all his life. I mean, sure, let's just go do it. Have fun. No big deal, right? He comes home. You think his wife is going to be okay and pleased with that. Or, or reverse it around, okay? No, there's going to be problems. Why? Because they're married. There's this sense of, hey, 
That was just, that was, I was, I didn't know where you were. I was calling search and rescue. I was calling hospitals. I mean, you understand how that analogy would work itself out. Anytime you're in in a close, intimate relationship, you are giving up individual freedom. You are. Our American dream wants us to try to have both. Have close, intimate community and connection and deep longing, and at the same time, not giving up any of our individuality. Friends, that simply is not possible. That is not God's plan. God has called us not into just citizens of his kingdom, but he's put us, he's moved us in together in the gospel. We are now members of a household. I wonder how these truths need to transform and deepen our own understanding of this identity we've given. But he goes even further. And this is really now the, now the magnifying glass, now we're burning leaves here, okay? You are stones in God's temple. Verse 20 through 22. This is, this is the imagery that gets the most attention from Paul, the most explanation, and it's probably the imagery that doesn't make sense to us. <laughs> okay? We get citizenship, we get household, but stones in a temple, whatever. You see in verse 20 through 22, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is saying that when you come to faith in Christ, when you become a child of God, you're not just you. You become a stone that is part of a whole structure. Verse 21. God is building something glorious. He's building something glorious with us as the building material, us as the stones. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. What is God building? A temple. And this is where we're all like, what? Boo, that's boring. But it's not, okay? Let me prove it to you. What made the temple of God so unique was not the marble pillars, the the structure, the architecture of it, it wasn't all the gold, it wasn't all the gilt work, all the fine carving, all the tassels and the hangings and all the intricacies of it, although that was certainly part of it. What made the temple so amazing is that is where God dwelled. The presence of God was in the tabernacle, which was the, which was the predecessor, the, the kind of the moving temple, the predecessor to the temple proper, this actual physical structure that Israel built, Solomon built. So here's, here's some, some verses. In Exodus 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is the tabernacle, the predecessor to the temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Disney does not have a ride that can compare to that. I mean, this is so spectacular, so spellbinding, so take your breath away that the attraction would be just walk near it. Right? I mean, you want, you want thrills and chills? God's presence is there. Second Chronicles 7, Solomon has built the temple, David's preparations, the plan, builds it, now is praying a prayer of dedication for the temple. And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, Second Chronicles 7, verse 1, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And you think that was awesome? God one-ups that, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
I mean, fire falling from the sky, consuming sacrifices, this massive display, and you've seen lightning fall, right? Pow! This power, but there was a greater power to come. It was this presence of God filling the temple. Or Ezekiel 43.5 in this vision, it says, the Spirit lifted me up. Ezekiel says, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, someplace he'd never been, couldn't be. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Like blood fills a body, God's glory filled the temple. And according to the Bible, if you have been brought to God, verse 16, if you've been brought to God in one body through the cross, then you are inhabited, you are possessed by God's Spirit. I don't know, if you're not a Christian, this sounds really weird, right? But these are spiritual truths and they're glorious. You can read about more of that in Romans chapter 8 of God's indwelling presence, how encouraging, how glorious it is to have no condemnation. But according to the Bible, that's our true. But everybody's like, yeah, God is in me. It's just awesome. But we're not just a pile of stones lying in a heap. That is not what God has done in his redemptive plan. Saved a bunch of stones and just tossed them into a heap. What we find in Ephesians 2 is that God is making us into something amazing. He's making us into a structure. He's building us and joining us together. And we're like getting cemented, right? How do stones hold together? There's cornerstone, everything's built around it, and you're cemented together. I mean, we went from moving in together to now being cemented together. You see how it's focused more and more? We're into this dwelling place for God by the Spirit, verse 22. So God doesn't mean to simply dwell in solitary, isolated stones. And we just happen to kind of gather together on a Sunday like marbles that happen for a brief moment, just kind of getting corralled into this one spot, but we're all kind of just ricocheting off of each other crazily. No, we're like, God, God's indwelling spirit is like magnetic. We're like steel ball bearings that have been magnetized together now through what God is doing. And he's building this up, us up, into this temple. He makes, he is at work and dwells in a spiritual structure, a spiritual temple made from many stones that is us through the gospel. So what I'm trying to do is help us realize, and our American minds need to hear this regularly, that the emphasis in the scriptures on the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God is not primarily for personal enjoyment, for personal comfort alone. Now that is there, yes. But it's there so that, because what is God doing with us together is he is making us into something. He's building us up into something that is glorious, where his presence is. This is why we have a passage in um, the Gospels, uh, no whole other sermon here, but he says where two or three are gathered together, there I am. It, that's not like anybody, well, I opened up a theological door there. The emphasis there is the, the gathered people of God is where God's presence shines and proclaims his glory. And you say, well, hang on now. Are you saying that I can't know God as an individual? That God's not with me now? That I can't do all things through Christ who strengthens me? That my Bible reading at home isn't important? I have not said any of that. But our American minds, because we're so individual in our culture and it's pressing us into more and more, pursuing this kind of worship of the individual, that we start to read biblical truths as like, help me. And there's a place for that, but it's really, what is God doing in us, through us, through this new humanity? We shouldn't pursue God only for personal, individual reasons. 
Christian growth, according to the Bible, is meant by God to happen in the context of Christian community. I mean, read about all the one another passages in the scriptures, and they are written to new humanities, to churches, for the gospel implications to be worked out in the context of that community. So what does all this mean then? Well, here we go. I mean, this is why it sounds so radical, so controversial, which is why all of us probably have some sort of objection kind of churning into our minds because it challenges one of our cultural assumptions. It means then if, if, we are, if you're not willing to become deeply grafted into a faith community of love and biblical truth and God-centered mission, you would be denying a massive part of what God says about what it means to be his child. According to the Bible, we can't say yes to God individually and say no to the deep relational commitments that he calls us into in this new humanity. This is why these texts are so controversial in our modern age context. Because we feel the, the, we feel the claustrophobia, the, the limitations of our free agency in life now to do and live and go as we please. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're like, how does this fit into, how does these texts conform how we consider ourselves even as American citizens? According to the Bible, you, you, you might say, well, I have a spiritual appetite and maybe you're looking for personal faith, maybe you're looking for God-sized purpose and meaning in your life. Great! But you must also accept the people, the body that God is all about. This means that you cannot be the Christian God wants you to be if you are non-committal towards Christ's church. Now, you're like, Sean, we are sitting here listening to you preach this. Do you think we're non-committal? No, I don't. I'm not preaching this because I think that there is this massive issue with commitment in, represented in this room. I'm not preaching that way, for, in, that, in that way. I'm not aiming this at anyone in particular. But we, are need, we need, to, need to understand the pressures of our current day context on us that is doing work against obedience, joyful obedience to these texts. So when I talk about commitment also, don't think I'm talking about just sheer busyness, like do more, like attend more, do more. What I'm trying to do is cast a vision for a biblically shaped mindset about our relationship to each other in this new humanity because of our new identity that we've been given in Jesus. I'm not trying to shame any of us into simply just be busier at Highlands Baptist Church. That is not the application here. It's really more of a mindset about how, not, not how much more can you do. It's not a guilt trip. What I'm encouraging us to have is this mindset about the identity we have in Christ. We are citizens of a kingdom. We are members of a household. We are stones in a temple. What does it then mean? Think of it. What does it mean to be a good, upstanding American citizen? Well, what does it mean then to be a good citizen of God's kingdom? And we, by the way, as a church, are an outpost of God's kingdom behind enemy lines. What does it mean to be a good family member? Like, what is one thing you could do this week in your physical family that you know would have a positive, beneficial influence on your family? As you think about the role of your, as a family member, husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, however far you want to go, cousin, third cousin, twice removed, whatever you want to do there, what would it look like? What is one thing you could do in your physical family this week that you know would have a positive, beneficial impact on your physical family? Do that. Now think of it, what is one thing you could do for your spiritual family? What is one mindset that you could have 
for your spiritual family that you know would have a positive, beneficial influence on your spiritual family this week. I'm, I'm going for this mindset that the scriptures are saying, here's your identity, here's who you are now. You're no longer just that guy, that girl. You are now part of a new humanity. Citizens of a kingdom, members of a household, stones in a temple. Too often we consider our spiritual life from an individual perspective and we let it end there. We make decisions there, but the Bible casts a different vision. Um, in Revelation, right, the apex of worship in the Bible is not a private personal devotional moment. It's not. The apex of worship in the Bible in Revelation, Revelation 5 says this, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that's who's there chanting this anthem. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The expressions of future eternal worship is the united voices of God's people enjoying God together. So, think of it this way. We belong together in Christ. And what we're talking about here, maybe put it this way, how would God have us at Highlands Baptist Church grow and mature in our understanding and in our pursuit and in our um, building of Christian friendship? Can we call it that? And it's more than friendship, I guess, but it, I mean, the Bible does say that there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So there's a sense of like family you've been, you just, you didn't get to choose, right? I mean, it was chosen for you. They're your, your family, right? I didn't, I mean, I love my, I love, I'll pick on my sister. I love my sister, but I didn't get to, like, it wasn't like there was a lineup of who would like to be your sister and her. I wasn't. She was born before me, right? She had it worse, right? Um, we don't get to choose that. But friends, in a sense, we do. But there's this wonderful, glorious thing that God has done in the gospel by putting us together. So here's, here's how I'm praying for this church family, for us, for my own heart. I'm praying that this church will increasingly be a place where Christian friendship, this Christian community, is something that is enjoyed and experienced by everyone. I'm asking God to help us. I'm praying that God would help us know each other and be known by each other in these deep, personal ways. I'm praying that God would give every member of Highlands Baptist Church one or two people in this church family who can see your blind spots and pray for you, someone who can be a close advocate, who can encourage you to do war against sin and help you follow Jesus. Will you join me in those prayers? And will you help build that kind of culture? I believe that the seeds are there. I believe that there's, there's sprouts on those branches of growth. It is there. Would you pray and would you build and ask God to bring a harvest? But let's get practical, right? These stones in a temple kind of relationship won't happen if we just attend on a Sunday. If we come, we sit, we listen, and we leave. You're like, well, you just told me I got to do more. No, I'm going after the mindset. Because I believe that the creativity, the resourcefulness, the ingenuity of you as image bearers of God, if we start having this mindset more and more, it's going to work itself out in fantastic ways that are not limited to just about how, um, how a few pastors are thinking about it or how, far, how a few church members might think about it. But if this would unleash us with the creativity, the resourcefulness, the ingenuity of who we are as God's image bearers, now in the context of being a member of this new humanity, Man, it's going to be amazing what's going to happen. The joys that we'll share, the relationships that we'll form, the laughter we'll enjoy, the prayer that we'll experience, the spiritual growth, the iron sharpening iron that will happen. So this changes the way we look at our equipping electives or our 
home groups or Bible studies or how we use how we use our homes maybe as now outposts of gospel ministry and mission and joy and shared life together, it starts to change once that mindset shifts. This isn't go do more. This is think these ways. This is who we are. All this intensity on our shared community is a threat to what our American culture is, is telling us. You be the best you you can be. You need to love yourself. You need to surround yourself with people who affirm you and love you for who you are to help you unleash your inner dream and passion so you can experience your greatest identity and deepest fulfillment. Friends, that's a lie of the devil. We've been given something greater and it's a shared community in this new humanity that God has made us if he's brought you to God through the cross of Christ. So I've been asking these questions of self-reflection But ultimately, I'm aiming for this vision of this new humanity, this who we are as citizens of God's kingdom. And so you're like, so what are we supposed to do with this truth? Pray that these ideas, that these realities, they're kind of abstract. Because it's not like when you get saved that there's like this Harry Potter sparkles and there's like this new heavenly passport that appears on your pillow the next morning. So these are abstract things, but they're real. Not everything that I can't see is not real. I mean, I can't see the air I'm breathing. It's real. But these spiritual realities, they're real. And would you embrace these realities, pray for these things, discuss these together, and then let me just challenge us. What is one thing you can pray or think or, or encourage or, or pursue that you know would have a positive, beneficial impact on God's building us up into this temple where his presence dwells so that his glory may be proclaimed more. Friends, I think what we have here is a great way to be a winsome witness in the world. To have the sense of, not inviting somebody to come to church just to kind of experience a service, but, man, we want you to come because God's presence is with us. You're going to experience something that I can't even hardly describe, maybe to our neighbors, but you're going to come and you're going to experience and you're going to, God willing, have eyes, spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, spiritual hearts to understand all that God has promised he is for you in Christ, that you are fully known and completely loved. And look at how radically it's changed how we relate to one another and how we engage on our mission in the world. Friends, we are citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's household, stones in the Lord's temple.